This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. Well, welcome to Choices today. We are examining the choices that we make. We are so happy to have you with us at Vortex. If you're in the auditorium today, it's a packed house. If you're watching over in Overflow or watching online today, I just want to say thank you uh, for being with us today. Uh, if you don't know much about us, I want you to know ahead of time that Vortex is the place that you can come to be built up, not be down, that you leave here feeling a little bit more encouraged than you felt when you came in, a little bit more filled up with life than you did when you walked in the doors. And so we're happy that you gave us the chance to do that. If you're here in the auditorium, let's give a, a hand for those who are watching over in Overflow and those who are watching online today. Now, the reason that we're doing this series is because we believe that we are today the sum total of the choices we've made up to this moment. We are. And tomorrow will be the sum total of the choices that we've made up to that moment. And Three years from now, you'll be the sum total of the choices that you made up to that moment. We are the sum total of the choices that we've made up to this moment. And if we don't think critically about the decisions and the choices we make, what will happen is we'll make the default, often the cultural or the family-oriented decision that we grew up in, and we'll miss God's best. In week one, we talked about the decision to choose... God's purpose over popularity. Many of you struggle with that question of what is my purpose? What am I on earth for? If you've asked that question, we have a little resource available at guest services called What Am I on Earth For? And it's by Pastor Rick Warren. I think you'll find it very helpful. As a matter of fact, we've included often in your worship guide throughout the series some invite cards. We have one more week left in this series. And you know, in that second week, we, we talked instead of about purpose and popularity, instead of choosing comfort or calling or choosing to value the opinion of God over the opinions of people. In the second week, we talked about the inclination that we have to choose to be controlling. How many of y'all know you can be a little bit of a control freak at times, all right? And so the decision is that we surrender instead of trying to control. Last week, if you were here, we talked about pain, and there's a pain that we have to choose either the pain of discipline or the pain of regret. And so we want to choose the pain of discipline because no discipline is pleasant at the time, but it does yield for us a harvest of right living. And so we want to embrace the pain of discipline because it brings us closer to the person that God made us to be. Just so you can understand where we're going next week, we have one more week in this series. And next week we're going to talk about choosing the important over the urgent. And we live in a world that makes everything a five-alarm fire. Everything. We, we live in a world that has learned to communicate and make everything seem urgent. And many of us are sacrificing what is really important for what feels urgent. I don't want you to miss out on that message. So to get started with this week, I, I want to ask you this question. Do you remember the first time you fell in love? 
You remember that first time? Back in like middle school, right? It was feelings that came over your, your belly, right? You start having some butterflies in there. And you look across the room for maybe like hours. Who knows, right? Just staring, just staring and staring and staring. Probably a little drool coming out of your mouth, a little drool. Right, just hoping that you might get that look returned. Maybe that in the hallway somebody would pass you a note, right? We wanted that. We wanted to get their attention. We would think about, God, well, what would it be like if I could just get their attention and their affection? We don't want to ask you this question. I want you to think real hard about this. Was that love? Was that love? See, the Bible has a lot to say about love. In a moment after the ministry of Jesus began to emerge, Jesus is questioned publicly by a lawyer. It happens in the context of Matthew chapter 22. and He's asked this question, look at this. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? The law encompasses all the commands of Moses, hundreds and hundreds of commands that were given to the Jews as guidelines for how they were to live. What are the greatest commandments? What's the greatest commandment? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Notice what he says now. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus does not go to obedience. He doesn't go to a religious perspective of life. He goes to love. The full revelation of God, all that God has exposed to us of himself, all hinges on these two simple commandments. You are to love God with all who you are, your, your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. Everything hinges on this. And well, oftentimes we don't talk about this because it is rather theologically complex, but in the life and ministry of Jesus, Jesus is going to fulfill the law. All of those commandments that were given and leveraged in the law of Moses, Jesus would live in complete and total fulfillment of them, becoming the sacrifice that would atone for them. And so he would leverage for us not just the removal of the law, but look at what happens in John 13. A new command I give you. Love one another. Love one another. Love one another as I, as I, as I have loved you. So you must love one another. If you want an interesting Bible study, spend some time researching how many times the phrase one another appears in the New Testament. Because Jesus takes all of those Old Testament laws and replaces them with a simple command. Love each other as I have loved you. And in the next verse, he says something that's pretty awesome. He says, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Notice what God's plan is to release his glory in the world that we would love that we would love like Jesus loved. And that would show not our radical expressions of faith, not our exceptional obedience, but our capacity 
to love is what would for the world be on display as Jesus is revealed. It's remarkable that the Bible points over and over again in very critical times to love. And it lets me know that if love doesn't look like Jesus, then it's not love. If love doesn't look like Jesus, then it's not love. And far too many times we've been tempted to cross lines, to step over boundaries, and to step into something that feels a lot like love, that appears a lot like love, but it is not love. It is something very different. See, the thing is, is that love brings life. But lust kills. We see that in James chapter 1. Look at this. But each one is tempted. You notice that it says each one is tempted. That means that you're included. I'm included. We're all included. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin. when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death, which lets me know that while lust may be very attractive when it shows up on the scene, lust comes with its very ugly cousins, sin and death. And they are pairs that are inseparable. See, I think that the confusion around love is not new. It is, it is something that we, we have felt from the very beginning. If we read the story of humanity's redemption from the very beginning, we find that we were often very confused about what love looked like, which I think is part of the reason that God sent us his son. As a matter of fact, Romans 8 puts it that way, that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. No, notice what it's saying, that God put love on display for us. God put love on display in a way that we could see it, understand it, and know it. Because we had gotten it wrong in so many ways, in so many times, we have missed the mark when it comes to what love is. Let me, let me just talk about a few ways culturally that we get it wrong. You know, sometimes we think that love owns and controls. That when we love somebody, especially when we're in a loving, committed relationship, that we now have some ownership and control over them. Now, you might not think about it that way. But if you're the person that has the thoughts of, I know what's right, and everybody that I love, y'all better be doing what's right, or else we're going to have some problems. If I catch you doing what I don't think you should be doing, there's going to be some problems in our relationship. Now, you can notice this within yourself. Okay, I just want you to do a little test on your own self. Have you ever noticed that you get upset when people do things you think they shouldn't do? If you find that in yourself, there's probably a little bit of control going on in your soul. And the problem with this, this is so dangerous and it gets so ugly. 
I want you to know this because the outworking of us thinking that we have some ownership or some control over somebody that we love is going to turn out to be very, very ugly. As a matter of fact, I would say that this is what happens, that we start when, 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 when we feel like we have ownership or that we have some control, when people don't do what we want them to do, we'll punish them. We'll withdraw our affection and our attention. Or when they do what's right, what we think they should, we'll lavish praise and we'll give them undue attention. It's not healthy. Let me show you what's going on. When we think we have a sense of ownership and control over a person, it only leads, it only leads to manipulation. That, that, withdrawing of attention and giving more praise than what's due is manipulative. It is trying to get your desired outcome out of somebody else. And that's not love. That's not love. Can I tell you something else that love isn't? Oftentimes we think that love entitles us. Oh man, we use some bad ways to express our thoughts on love. We'll say things like, you know, I'm really, I'm really pouring into this relationship. I'm really investing in this person. You know that an investment works this way, right? That you put a resource into an investment so that you can get more out of it later. That's why some of you get awfully mad that you helped somebody move and they didn't come to help you move when you moved. Because you go, I invested, where's the return on my investment? Love in in, in this way says stupid things like, if you love me, you will fill in the blank. And it's not just the teenager-ish. It's if you love me, you would clean the house. If you love me, you would wash my car. If you love me, you would say all the right things. If you love me, you would do exactly what I think you should do. That's not love. See, if, if love is an economic transaction, Our way of loving will never look at all like Jesus. Because I don't know about you, but I have a debt to him that I will never come close to repaying. He has poured more into me than I will ever come close to giving out for him. There is not a give and a get. He has lavished upon me grace and love more than I could ever deserve or earn. And there is no way and no amount of effort that I could ever live in an economy where I pay him back. If we're going to love like Jesus, love cannot be an economic transaction. So let's think about lust. Let's think about it for a second. I want to go back to that verse in James, James 1, 14 and 15. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. 
Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. This passage, letting us understand what happens, we, we experience temptation, we step over a boundary into lust, and then coming with lust is sin, and then following death is no more evident than in the story of David, King David, and a woman named Bathsheba. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. If my boy told me he was dating a girl named Bathsheba, I'd be like, dude, what? (laughs) But it's better than it sounds, okay? All right. I want you to see this, how this story begins to unfold. 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. I want you to understand this as we get started. David was intended to leave with the army. It was the time when kings went out to war. He was the king. He was supposed to go to war. But instead of following his his calling, he stayed in comfort in the city of Jerusalem, in the palace that had been built for him. It's his first mistake, to step out of his calling, and to stay in comfort. Then one evening, then verse 2, David got up from his bed and walked. Y'all have not been able to sleep, right? Anybody ever been able to? Like you get up and you walk to the kitchen, go get a snack, right? Or just go look at the snacks if you're trying to be healthy. Just look at them. Lust over them for a few minutes. I really want a Pop-Tart, but I know I shouldn't. It's 2 a.m. It's a bad time to eat a Pop-Tart, Okay. Apparently this day, this is what happened with David. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof. Okay, how many of y'all have ever got up and just walked around on the roof? I'm going to be honest, I haven't. Never done that, but apparently this was something that David did. Walked around on the roof of the palace. Here's problem number two, right? He put himself in position for something. Watch what happens. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. Can I give you a principle here in life? You can't control what you see. You cannot unsee the things you have seen, but you can control what your eyes linger on. David sees a woman who is bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. What do we know now? David has lingered in his looking. Then David sent the messengers to get her. I want you to see something about, this is the first thing in, in your notes today. Lust takes what is not given. It's not given from the person in permission, and it's not giving from the posture of the relationship. Lust takes what is not given. If something that is taken is not at the right moment in that relationship, if it is not something that is willfully being given, I want you to understand the only thing that's happening in that moment is lust. And right now, David is lusting over this woman, Bathsheba. And he calls to his guard to go get her. They go get her. They bring her to him. They sleep together, spend the night together. And this grand contrast between love and lust begins to unfold. Because here's the thing about love. Love gives. Love gives. It doesn't take. Love gives. You know the verse, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he, everybody, gave. Gave. Because love gives. That's what love does. Lust takes. 
You know, love, love wants for, lust wants from. And in this moment, David just wanted something from her, which is where we see number two in your notes, that lust is selfishly motivated. It is all concerned with itself. There is no selfless motive at all. Lust is selfishly motivated. And sometimes you might be thinking, but I want good things for the people that I'm trying to control. Whose good thing? Your good thing or God's good thing? But I've earned that with this person. I've poured so much and I've given so much. What? And you think that you deserve something that's not appropriate for the relationship that you have with them. Love is selfless, but lust is selfishly motivated. And we see this play out in this story. 2 Samuel 11 verse 5 tells us the 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 implications of what happened that night that the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. I'm pregnant. So David hatches a plan. Her husband Uriah is a very valiant warrior in the army of Israel. And he sends for him to come home. And he comes home, and his plan is to tell Uriah, Uriah, you have the evening off. Uh, I want you to take a couple days. You've been so brave. You've been so good. I just want to reward you with some time with your wife. Well, you can see what's happening. He wants him to go and spend the evening with his wife so that when the news of the pregnancy is discovered, that there'll be some confusion, that he'll think it was his child. But Uriah is so faithful to David that he says, no, my Lord, not while the armies are encamped. My job is to be with them. And so if you have summoned me, I will not return home. I will sleep at the gates of the palace until you release me. And he did. Refused to go home. Refused to take that time off. Because he was so faithful to his calling, to his God and to his king. So David, in a very manipulative way, Sends him back to war. Notice what happened. David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. And he wrote, put Uriah out in front of the fighting where it's fiercest, then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. David gives orders to kill Uriah. All throughout this, there is no concern for anyone other than himself. The motive from the very beginning up to now has all been selfish. It has been, what do I get? 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 And it doesn't go well. Because that's not love. See, a lot of times when we think of selfish motivation, we we think of that arrogant guy who, who who is constantly around you know around people. It's just me 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 me. But selfishness can be the girl who so lustfully wants the attention of a man or a relationship with someone that she will give up her integrity so that she can gain the attention she wants. Lust is. 
the person who wants to control the people that are around them that they love because they think that they know what's better for them than God. And lust, number three in your notes, always brings death. It always brings death. It it happens in this moment, in this story. The, The prophet Nathan shows up and he comes before the king of Israel and, and he says, David, I, I need, need to tell you a story. I need to tell you about something that's happened. There was a, a shepherd and he had, a, he had a lot of sheep and then there was a shepherd who had one sheep and the shepherd with a lot of sheep went and stole the sheep from the one. David hears this story and he becomes incensed at this story. He becomes so angry and he stands up. This man must die. And Nathan points at him and says, it's you. You are that man. In that moment, David, who is described by God as being a man who had a heart after him, wakes up to see the lust that he'd been living in. And he goes... And he begins to mourn and weep. And day after day after day, he pleads with God, God, don't let it be so. Don't let my son die. Don't let my son die. Don't let my son die. But eventually, his son would die. And the story that was conceived in lust begins with death. Because lust only brings death. It's not what love brings. Love brings life. I think that we've been so confused about love. I just want to talk about love for a few minutes, just what what love does in our lives. The first thing that love does in your notes is that love waits. Love waits. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is this beautiful discourse on the nature of love. And in that, in the fourth verse, the Apostle Paul says that love is patient. Now, if you like being patient, raise your hand. All right, don't ra- nobody raise your hand, because if you do, God's going to test you all week long in your patience. And let me just tell you, that's something you don't want. There's not a person in the room that likes being patient. But here's the thing about love. There is an appropriate expression of love at every stage of the development of our relationship with others. And there are things that need to be saved for later. There are things that are, there's an appropriate time. If we're talking about a romantic relationship, there's an appropriate time to hold hands. There's an appropriate time to kiss. But there's an appropriate level of commitment that needs to be in place before things go too far. And love waits. It's not fun to wait. It's not easy to wait, but love waits. But lust takes what's not it. That's lust. Love waits. See, the thing about love is not only does it wait, but love sees the best. Love sees the best. Oh, it sees the best in other people. How many of y'all know we live in a world that's constantly looking for the critical flaw in somebody else? 
We're looking for the, the thing that, that makes me think a little bit less. I mean, I'm just looking for somebody to slip up, mess up, and say something that I don't agree with. But that's not the way love operates. Love is constantly looking for what's right. It's constantly looking for the thing that we can affirm. It's constantly trying to find somebody in the posture in their heart where I can celebrate and elevate them. Love sees the best in people. It believes the best in people. It's important that we recognize that that's how love works. Love sees the best. But can I be honest with you? If you love somebody, it's not always going to be the best. The people that you love are going to hurt you. There are going to be things that happen in relationships that shouldn't happen. There are going to be boundaries that get crossed. There are going to be words that are said that can't be taken back. It's going to happen. It's not always going to be the best, but love sees the best. But when it's not the best, love forgives as freely as you've been forgiven. If we're going to love like Jesus has loved us, we cannot withhold forgiveness from others. So many of us think that by withholding forgiveness from somebody else, we're actually punishing them. No, you're punishing yourself. Unforgiveness is kind of like swallowing poison and expecting it to hurt someone else. No, we need to forgive as, as freely as we've been forgiven. That's love. That's what love looks like. Number three in your notes, love doesn't have a butt. That's funny, y'all. I'm just going to say that. Some of y'all are like, I don't have a butt either. All right. We're not talking about that same kind of butt, okay? Just so you know up front, all right? Love doesn't have a butt. Y'all have heard this before, right? People start dating. They come over and they're talking to you about it. I love them. I love them so much. It's so funny. so fun to be around, but I hate the way they eat. Man, they eat with their mouth open. I just see everything. It's just like they're chomping the whole time. I can't stand it. It's wearing me out. I love them. I love spending time with them. I love everything about them, but I don't love their family. <laughs> but, right? Right? But here's the thing about love. Love doesn't have a butt. Love doesn't have a butt. There is no clause in love. There is no I accept you, but I don't like your. No, it's not the way love works. As a matter of fact, I would say this. Love wholly accepts and values another, believing the best in them, which is why love accepts you where you are. Love values you where you are, but love doesn't leave you where you are. That's how Jesus loves. Oh, he'll meet every one of us right where we are. I don't care what stage of life or what you've done. You cannot do anything else to make God love you more. You can't do anything to make God love you less. Oh, he loves you. He's passionate about you. And he'll accept you and love you right where you are. But he's not going to leave you where you are. Because that's not love. That's enabling. And that's not the way that God loves. See, I think ultimately, love loves 
like Jesus loves. Jesus is the template for authentic love. He showed us, proved to us, demonstrated for us what love looks like. And if we're ever going to love, if we're ever going to live out that simple commandment, love as you have been loved, the world will know that you are my followers because you love one another. See, the thing is, is that behind keyboards, we can look all bullish and bad, saying the craziest stuff that we've ever imagined on the Internet. But face to face, I want you to understand that the world looks very different. What, what if we just all kind of got it in our hearts that our mission was to love? was to love the people who live next door, to love the people that we work with, to love the crazy people in our family, to love our spouses in spite of the fact that their family's crazy, to love our kids in spite of the fact that every crazy thing in us is reflected in them. To love the people in the community who say things negative about you. To refuse to fight fire with fire. To fight fire with water. Because that's what love is. Where there's hate, love puts it out. Where there's lust, love puts it out. God's love for you is so passionate. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13 about this love. And I thought it would be helpful to spend some time just simply reading through it. I'm going to read out of the message paraphrase, so it's going to feel a little different than it maybe did when it was read at your wedding because many of us weren't living for Jesus at the time and really we knew we were supposed to have some scripture read and 1 Corinthians 13 is on one of those lists. And so we picked it out and so we had it read, but we never really paid attention to it. I want you to really think about it today as we read through it. I want you to think about it as the way God loves you. As how he has chosen to love you. Because love is a choice. It's not an emotion. It's not something we feel. Love is a choice. And at times when we've made that choice, we won't feel it. We won't feel like doing it. But love is a choice. And God has chosen to love you. I want you to see how important it is, not only that you experience that love, but that you show that love to others. Let's read, beginning in verse 1. If I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy, but don't love, I'm nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all the mysteries and making everything plain as day, and if I have faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't love, I'm nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor, and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe, or what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. Love never gives up. Love never cares more for others 
or love cares more for others than for itself. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut. It doesn't have a swelled head. Love doesn't force itself on others. Love isn't always me first. Love doesn't fly off the handle. Love doesn't keep score of sins or wrongs of others. Love doesn't revel when others grovel, or love doesn't rejoice when others are suffering. But love instead takes pleasure in the flowering of truth. Look at this. Love puts up with anything. Puts up with anything. Puts up with anything. Trust God always. Always looks for the best. Never looks back, but keeps going to the end. See, for right now, until we see clearly and until Jesus comes back and we're fully redeemed, we have three things to do to lead us towards that moment. Trust steadily in God, hope unswervingly, and love extravagantly. And the best of these three is love. We see, that kind of love is a love that we can only give when we've received it. We have to be the people who have been loved so that we can love. In the first century, when the church was just starting to take off in the midst of high levels of persecution, when people who professed to become Christians were burned at the stake and murdered and executed, Christians were known as the plague began to spread across Western Europe. They were known for sticking around behind and feeding those who had been left, caring for those who were sick, tending to the people who were in the prisons, left for nothing. The, the Christians in that kind were known for their love for each other and because of their capacity to love a world that was broken and lost the message of the gospel spread like wildfire what would happen if just a few of us in this room could learn how to love that way Jesus in John 15 again expresses his commandment when he says this my command is this Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, than to lay one's life down for one's friends. See, here's the thing about God's love. He proved it. He proved that he loved you. He showed you love when he went to the cross. And on the cross, where his hands and feet were nailed, where his body was broken, on the cross, Jesus demonstrated what love looks like. Love that is not selfish. Love that is selfless. That doesn't take into account the cost in which it's going to cost. That doesn't take into account its own self. This reckless love that is at all stakes, at all costs coming so that the person who is the object of the love can be loved and redeemed and rescued. That's how he loved you. And that's how we get to love 
Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.